some predictions demand a response. I am a native of Ohio, so I grew up occasionally hiding in storm cellars whenever we got a warning of a tornado that was coming. Because some predictions demand a response. You hear tornadoes coming, and if it's a tornado warning, you hide somewhere. My wife's a Georgia peach, and probably the biggest natural disaster she had to be afraid of where she grew up was the, the sweltering Georgia heat in the summer, and you have to flee to the great indoors where there's air conditioning. Both of us were new to this region of the United States when we came here, and we had to encounter something that we had never experienced before, and that was hurricane season. Those of you that have lived here for any length of time know about hurricane season. Our first two years here, we made it relatively uh, with no real issues until 2018. In 2018, we had the threat of Hurricane Florence. Perhaps you remember, if you lived here then, Hurricane Florence was heading right this way. And uh, our governor at the time, Ralph Northam, evacuated about 250,000 Virginians. Uh, this was a Category 4 storm that was projected to hit right here in Hampton Roads. And I remember visiting with some old-timers, some Pocosin old-timers right around that time and hearing some of them say, this has the looks of Isabel. And if you say Isabel around here, you know that was a really, really, really bad storm. So here I am, new to hurricane country with my family, and I didn't know what else to do but pick them all up and drive them to Atlanta, Georgia, where they could be safe with Holly's family. And, uh, but I couldn't bear the thought of leaving them there while all of my church family was here to ride out the storm. So I dropped them off, drove back here, and I remember on that ride back, I called every single name in our membership directory, making sure that that everybody that was a part of this church family was okay. Got it back, hunkered down for the storm, and by God's grace, the storm didn't even come close to Hampton Roads. One of my friends, Eric, working in the AV booth, sent me a picture of a twig that fell in his backyard, and he sent me a caption that said, we will rebuild. <laughs> now, of course... We know that not everybody was safe from that storm. There were some people that were severely affected. But in this region, thankfully, we weren't. And yet we still responded. I was reading this morning that the, the cost, the government cost in the state of Virginia to evacuate and do everything that they did to prepare to, for that storm that never hit was somewhere around $75 million that was spent. And yet, despite all the government spending that we sometimes complain about, few people complained about that because when it comes to something as devastating, potentially devastating as a hurricane, it's better to be safe than sorry. Some predictions demand a response. Now, if that's true for something like a hurricane or a tornado, how much more is it true if what's at risk is not merely your home or your possessions or your life, but your eternity, 
How much more is it important to rightly respond to some sort of a prediction if eternity is on the line? In our text that we just read in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is near the middle of His earthly ministry. Up to this point, as we've been studying Matthew's gospel, he has taught with authority, he's healed lepers, he's made blind men see, he's raised people from the dead, he's walked on water, he's calmed storms with a word, he's fed thousands of people with a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. Jesus has done one miracle after another, but there's one thing so far that he has not yet done until this point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has yet to tell his disciples why he came. In our text, for the first time, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that this prediction in this passage that Jesus makes, he's not predicting what will happen to him just to impress everybody with his incredible supernatural knowledge. It's not as if Jesus is trying to do some sort of a trick. Look, I can tell the future. I'm like Nostradamus or something. Jesus is predicting what's going to happen to him because he wants his disciples, and by extension, all of us, to respond rightly to that prediction. From the moment Jesus first predicted his resurrection, he demanded that people respond rightly to it. In our text this morning, with God's help, I want to show you three steps that everyone must take if you're going to respond rightly to the resurrection of Jesus. Three steps. Every single person in this room, man, woman, boy, girl. First time here, been here for 30 years. Every single person in this room and every single person on this planet must take these three steps to respond rightly to the resurrection of Jesus. Let me tell you what they are, and then we'll walk through them in the passage together. Here's the three steps. Number one, know who Jesus is. Number two, know why he came. And number three, follow him with joy. If you're going to respond rightly to the resurrection of Jesus, you need to know who he is, you need to understand why he came, and you need to follow him with joy. Let's begin with the very first one. We need to know who Jesus is. I want to take you back to April 22nd, 2006. It was a sunny Saturday in Covington, Georgia, and there I stood before a podium about to answer one of the most important questions in my life. As a preacher looked at me in the eyes and he said, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Now, those of you that have been to a wedding know that there's only one right answer to that question. <laughs> Not, let me think about it. Or, maybe. Definitely not, can I take a rain check? Certainly not, no. When you're standing there on that platform about to marry the person that you love, the person that you asked to marry you, the only correct answer is, I do. 
Now, those of you that know me know that I'm a scatterbrain sort of person. And <laughs> why are you laughing over there? <laughs> now I just lost my train of thought. That was a perfect illustration. A scatterbrain sort of person, I'm given to flights of fancy and daydreaming. I'm given to lose my place. And yet, by God's grace, I knew how to answer correctly in that moment. I did not stutter. I did not fumble over my words. And I said, I do. And I've never regretted the answer that I gave that afternoon. Now, this morning, I want you to picture that you're on the platform. And the minister is looking you in the eyes and asking you the most important question that you've ever heard. But it's not about who you're going to marry. Here's the question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Just like a nervous groom can answer the minister in many ways, but only one answer is really correct. There's really only one right answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you know that those answers are absolutely wrong. Jesus is not a reincarnation of John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah the prophet. But before we move on too quickly from that, I want you to think about how flattering those answers would be. I mean, what if you went up to a crowd of people and you asked, who do you think that I am? And they said, well, you're like the second coming of Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or Billy Graham. I mean, you'd be flattered, right? I mean, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, these guys were rock stars. These were the, the superheroes of the Old Testament. To say he's like Elijah, he's like John the Baptist, he's like Jeremiah would be unbelievably flattering for any of us or any self-respecting Jew in Jesus' day. But Jesus is not interested in your flattery. You can say a lot of nice things about Jesus. What Jesus cares about is if you know the truth. Saying that Jesus is like one of those men is to totally misunderstand the way that those men served. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, all of them were pointing to the Messiah. Jesus is the point. He's not the pointer. He's the point. Now, it would be perhaps maybe to get our heads around this. If you were to come up to me after the service and you were to see my wife over there and you said, who is she? And what if I answered you, well, she's the woman that makes me dinner. Well, that would not be very kind. Now, you guys are probably really freaking out right now. That's actually, I'm joking right now. That's not what I would say. <laughs> that would be incredibly underwhelming, wouldn't it? Not flattering at all. It's to take maybe one tiny thing that may be a part of what she does and make like, that's who she is. And to say that Jesus is a prophet, 
Well, he is a prophet, but he is much more than a prophet. It's to take one tiny part of who he is and say that's all he is. That's incredibly insulting, just like it would be insulting for me to say my wife is the one who cooks me dinner. You get perhaps your head wrapped around a little bit what that question what it means to answer that question that way. So Jesus asks his disciples another question. He's pressing in. Jesus says in verse 15 to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? This is perhaps the most important question in the universe. Dear friend, some of you, I've seen, I'm seeing you here for the very first time. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he? You'll be hard-pressed. Someone's saying Jesus is the Son of God. You're exactly right, but you're spoiling it. We're going to get there in a minute. You will be hard-pressed to find somebody on the planet that doesn't have an opinion about Jesus. So, for example, Martin Luther King Jr. said, Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Mikhail Gorbachev said that Jesus was the first socialist. Jane Fonda said Jesus was a feminist. Elton John said Jesus was a super intelligent gay man who understood human problems. Albert Einstein said Jesus was a myth. Bill O'Reilly said Jesus was a political visionary, kind of like a Tea Party activist. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, said Jesus was a great prophet. Most people today, perhaps maybe many of you, will say that Jesus was a good person. Who do you say that he is? Can I suggest to you that there's only one right answer? And it's the answer that's given to us in verse 16. When Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We got to it. He's the Son of God. Peter looks at Jesus in the eyes, and he says two essential truths about Jesus. Number one, he says Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Now, you may not know this, and that's okay, but the, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It'd be like calling someone Mr. President. Christ is a title. It means Messiah, rescuer, savior, deliverer. If you were an Old Testament saint, if you were a Jew living in Jesus' day, you knew that there was a Messiah coming, a rescuer coming to rescue God's people. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find over and over and over again promises of this Messiah figure who's going to come. And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, that's you. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And then he says, you are the son of the living God. Now again, I, I think that if we're not careful we can let the, the severity of that comment kind of slip right past us. It would be the height of blasphemy for any self-respecting Jew to look to a human being and say, you are the son of the living God. 
That would be the kind of comment, what Peter's saying right here is the kind of comment that you could get stoned for. This is no minor deal. He is saying he believes that Jesus didn't begin existing when he was born in Bethlehem. He believes that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Now, we believe, the Bible teaches that God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, in the, before Christ, before the New Testament, there were hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament, but it isn't completely fleshed out until the New Testament. So most Jewish people weren't expecting that God would send His Son. They were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a rescuer. But there were much, there was a lot of things that they missed as they read the Old Testament Scriptures. So for Peter to look at Jesus and say, you are the Son of the living God is an incredible statement. Just last week, a group of us from PBC was in Turkey on a vision trip there to partner with some local churches in that part of the world. And I talked to a Turkish believer while we were there who said that he used to reject Christianity because he thought that we believed in three gods. Uh, As a good Muslim, he knew that there is only one God. But then as he began to read the Bible, he began to understand the Bible's teaching on the Trinity. We don't worship three gods, but one God who has existed for eternity in three persons. Maybe you say, well, that's confusing. That's hard to understand. I can't believe in that. I mean, how can you have a a three-personal being, one being, one God with three persons? That doesn't make sense to me. Let me suggest to you, dear friend, that there are countless things in this universe that don't make sense to us. What kind of God would be easy to understand? I would say one that's not worth very much. Would it make sense for a a, a non-complex being to create a universe with utter complexity? I mean, if we look at this universe and we say it's complex, wouldn't it make sense that it would have come from a creator being that's more complex than this? So I would encourage you, dear friend, if you reject Christianity because the Trinity is hard for you to understand, to think again, because wouldn't it make sense that this incredible universe came from a being even more incredible and more complicated than you and I could ever imagine? So so Peter, he's he's not diving into the depths of Trinitarian theology here, but he is professing his belief that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and the eternal Son of God. So let me ask you, dear friend, again, is that what you believe about Jesus? Perhaps you're thinking, well, to me, Jesus is somebody else. Let's think about that for just a moment. If you don't know me, my name's Hobson. I'm one of the pastors here. Let's imagine that someone asks you after the service, well, tell me about Pastor Hobson. What would you say? If you said that he's a six-foot-four, olive-skinned man with a bald head, a thick beard, and rock-hard abs, you would be devastatingly wrong. You could say, well, that's who he is to me. 
but you don't have the right to create your own version of me in your head. I am who I am. So too with Jesus. We do not have the right to create in our minds our own interpretation of who Jesus is. He is who he is, and he responds to Peter and tells us that he is exactly who Peter said he was. Look with me at verse 17. And Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That just means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus responds to Peter with two important truths about Peter's confession. First, Jesus tells us that it's the Father who enables us to respond rightly to Jesus. If you're in this room and you believe rightly about Jesus, it's not because you're smarter than somebody else. If you're in this room and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's not because you had the brains to figure it out. Notice what Jesus says to Peter. My Father revealed this to you. If you're in this room and your heart is aching for someone, maybe even someone in this room, to believe the truth about Jesus, what they need is not to hear an incredible argument. What they need is not an incredible presentation of the good news. What they need is for God to work in their heart. It's the Father that enables us to respond rightly about Jesus. This means that Christians... We should be the most humble people in the universe because the things that we understand and believe that are right, we only believe them because God has revealed them to us. So let this be a place where pride dies. Jesus says, the Father reveals this to you, Peter. The second thing that Jesus says in response to what Peter confesses about him is that the church consists of those who respond rightly to Jesus in verses 18 and 19, Jesus is talking about the church. He says, you're Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And that verse has been misinterpreted for hundreds and hundreds of years. There are some of our friends that would say, well, that's Peter. He's the first pope. And the church is built on Peter. He's the rock. He's the first pope. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying that his church consists of people that respond rightly to Jesus. That's what the church is. If you're in this room and you don't have a lot of experience with church, let me tell you, this is not a museum for saints. This is a hospital for sinners it's a place filled with people that have responded rightly to Jesus. Not because we're smart and we figured it out, but because the Father revealed him to us. That's what a church is. It's a gathering of people that respond rightly to Jesus. If you're in this room and you believe the truth about Jesus, you believe what we just read about who Jesus is, let me challenge you for just a moment. 
you should belong to a church. You should belong to a church. When we were in Turkey, we met believers from Afghanistan, from Iran, from Iraq, and from Turkey who sacrificed everything to belong to a church. Losing their jobs, losing their families, losing their homes. Why? Because that's what followers of Jesus do. We want His people. We need His people. If you're an American Christian in this room, let me with all respect, say to you that you're a fool if you think that you can follow Jesus without His people. You can't do it. We can't do it. If you know who Jesus is, you should belong to a church. If you're here this morning and you don't belong to a church, one of our pastors will be over at the white flag at the end of the service. I'll be out in in the parking lot. We would love to talk to you about what it means to belong to a church and maybe tell you more about who we are at PBC. But Jesus expects that his followers, the people that rightly respond to him, are going to gather in something called a church. And this is an institution that even the gates of hell can't overcome. But knowing Jesus, knowing who he is, is not enough. Look at verse 20, Jesus strictly charges his disciples that tell no one that he was the Christ. Have you ever wondered why Jesus sometimes, if you read the Gospels, he'll tell his disciples not to tell anybody that he's the Messiah. The reason why he does that, part of the reason at least, is because even though they know who he is, they don't yet know why he came. We spent most of our time on that first step. Let's go to the second step. Number one, if you want to respond rightly to Jesus, you have to know who he is. Number two, you have to understand why he came. So why did Jesus come? As you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that there's two types of prophecies about the Messiah. Some prophecies point to a suffering Messiah. Like Isaiah 53, verse 3, where it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Other prophecies point to a triumphant, victorious Messiah. Like Isaiah 2, verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So the Jewish people often, they like those prophecies better, the ones about a triumphant Messiah. They didn't understand that there was actually going to be two comings of Jesus, his first coming when he would wear a crown of thorns, and the second coming when he would be crowned with many crowns and rescue his people forever and usher in eternity and heaven and judgment for those who reject him. They didn't understand that these prophecies were kind of like a mountain range that you see from a distance. From a distance, the mountain range looks all uniform, like everything is all together. But the closer you get to it, you notice there's valleys in between those peaks. And there is the first coming of Jesus when he would come to suffer, and the second coming where he would come as a conquering king. 
But most Jews were expecting the triumphant Messiah. So Jesus explains in verse 21 why he came. And that must have been an incredible shock when his disciples heard it. Listen to what Jesus says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's as if Jesus is saying, you, you guys understand who I am? That's great. Now I want, you to tell you, I want to tell you why I'm here. Dear friend, Christianity is not a cute, clean religion. It's a bloody religion. It's a religion that says that God is infinitely holy and just and righteous and we are filthy sinners who have rebelled against God. And because of that, there's this great chasm between us and God, a great separation. And Jesus came to this earth and lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death on a bloody cross and rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him can have everlasting life. Jesus says, I'm coming here to die. Notice how the disciples responded to that. Verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. When the text says that Peter rebukes Jesus, that's a word that's used in connection with casting out demons. So Peter speaks to Jesus forcefully, and he says, absolutely not. You're not going to die. You're the victorious Messiah. You're the conquering king. This will never happen to you. Peter isn't gently disagreeing with Jesus. He is firmly rejecting what Jesus is teaching. What about you? Do you understand why Jesus came? Was it so you could live a comfortable life? Was it so your marriage could prosper? Was it so you wouldn't have to worry about death anymore? Now, all those things might be, for some of you, results of Jesus' influence in your life, but that's not why He came. Many people believe that Jesus simply came as a moral example. He's, he's kind. He preaches love. He helps people. He's a good man. It's no wonder that virtually every religion in the world has something positive to say about Jesus. But Jesus is not pleased with you saying nice things about him if you reject the reason for his coming. Notice how Jesus responds to what Peter says. Verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If Peter's rebuke of Jesus was harsh, Jesus' rebuke of Peter is even harsher. He says, Get behind me, Satan. Satan, the arch demon, is animating you and leading you to reject my coming. This is a good reminder that it's possible to believe some truths about Jesus and yet still reject the most important truths about Jesus. 
I wonder if that might be true for someone in here this morning. Is there some of you here that you believe some of this, but you reject parts of it? And for whatever reason, you refuse to believe that Jesus came to die as your substitute to pay the penalty for your sin. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus tells us clearly in a sentence why he came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Dear brother, sister, friend, there is a judgment day that's coming, and on that day, you will either pay for your own sins in hell, or you will point to the one who paid for your sins on the cross. Do you understand that this is the reason why Jesus came? If you're in this room this morning and you're hearing this and, and you want to learn more, you want to understand it better, maybe there's parts you still don't fully understand, would you please talk to me or one of our pastors at the white flag after the service? Uh, there's a course called Christianity Explained that we would love to walk through with you so that you can understand why Jesus came, that he came to die as your substitute. If you want to respond rightly to Jesus, you need to know who he is. You need to know why he came. And number three, you need to follow him with joy. You need to follow him with joy. Did you know, dear friend, that it's possible to know who Jesus is and understand why he came and still go to hell? You can believe these first two points and still be separated from God forever. Maybe that's news to you. Maybe you've never heard that before. James chapter 2, verse 19 tells us about a group of beings who believe a lot of truth about Jesus but will be separated from Him forever. Listen to James 2, 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons knew who Jesus was. In fact, if you read the Gospels, the first created beings to call Jesus the Son of God are demons, the first ones. Before another human calls Jesus the Son of God like Peter does in our text this morning, demons say it. They know who Jesus is. They recognize His voice. His is the voice that made them when they were angelic beings before they fell. His is the voice that calms the storms. His is the voice that said, let there be light. And there was light. The demons, maybe they didn't know then, but they certainly know now why Jesus came. They know that Jesus came to die as a substitute for his people. And yet, even though they know who Jesus is and understand why he came, they will be separated from God forever in a place of eternal judgment. Why? Because knowing who he is and knowing why he came is not enough if you will not follow him with joy. Jesus invites you today, brother, sister, friend, to follow him. That's the point he makes beginning in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice how personal Jesus is getting. 
it's not enough to believe that he's going to die on a cross. Jesus tells his followers, if you want to follow me, you've got to get your own cross and carry it and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? Cross is a device of execution. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to die first. Not, not a literal death, but a death to your preferences, a death to your comfort, a death to your self-esteem, a death to your reputation, a death to your possessions, a death to your money, a death to your relationships, a death to you being in control of your own life. You die to all of that, and you say, all I want to do is follow Jesus. Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. Maybe your instinct is, well, why would anybody want to do that? Jesus, in the final verses of our text, gives us three reasons to follow him. Number one, he's the only path to lasting joy. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, I plead you to consider following him because he's the only path to lasting joy. Look at verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Listen, you can live your life pursuing joy and pleasure and fun and possessions and stuff, but you'll lose it in the end. Look at this microphone cord here, and I'm probably going to break something, so sorry in advance. This cord goes under this stage and down through this black tape, and let's just pretend that it goes through the wall, through the building, outside of Pocosin, and outside of Virginia, and keeps going all the way around the world, and keeps wrapping around, and around, and around, and around, and around. This cord just goes on, and on, and on forever. Some of you are living your life like the only thing that matters is this tiny little part of the cord. You're going to live, most of you, 60, 70, 80 years. Some of you more, some of you less. And whether it's 100 years or 10, compared to eternity that goes on and on and on and on and on forever, it's this. And perhaps you're in this room and you think about Christians and you think, you guys are so weird. We are weird. You guys can say amen if you want to. I mean, it's true. And you think, you guys are so weird. You're, you're giving money to your church. You're giving your time to your church. You're giving your effort to your church. Why are you wasting so much of your life? You know what I think? I think you're weird. Because you're living your life for this. And there's all of this. And it keeps on going forever. How foolish is it to live for this when eternity awaits you? Jim Elliott says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says, you want to gain the world? You're going to lose it in the end. If you let go of it and grab onto me, it'll never be taken away from you. He is the only path to lasting 
joy. The world says, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. The Christian says, eat, drink, and be merry, because yesterday we were dead. Follow Jesus because he's the only path to lasting joy. Follow him because the victory has already been won. We're not going to skip verse 27, but let's look at verse 28 just so we can consider these reasons in chronological order. Verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What is Jesus talking about? He says, some of you guys aren't going to die until you see my kingdom coming. Well, he's certainly not talking about his second coming because it's been 2,000 years and we're still waiting for the second return, the return of Jesus. Some people have said he's talking about his transfiguration. If you read Matthew 17, that'll be our text next Sunday. Jesus appears in his glory before some of his disciples. But I think what Jesus is talking about is his resurrection. There's no clearer place where you see the kingdom power of Jesus than on that Sunday morning when a heart that had been three dead stopped beating starts pumping blood again. When lungs begin to suck in oxygen after lying dormant. There is no clearer power of the kingdom of Christ than that even death the one thing that none of us can ever overcome cannot overcome Jesus. So we follow Jesus because the victory has already been won. And finally, we follow him because he's coming again to reward his people. Look at verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I think if we're honest, when we think of Jesus coming to repay people according to what uh, we've done, most of us are tempted to think of that in negative terms. Jesus is coming back, and he's issuing demerits for all the bad things that we did. I do think that there is a judgment day awaiting for anyone who has not put their faith in Christ, but I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the Son of Man coming back to repay people according to what they've done. I think Jesus is returning to reward his people. Jesus is coming back to reward you. Dear Christian, whatever sacrifice you make to follow Jesus will be paid back tenfold in the end a hundredfold, a thousandfold. Whatever sacrifice you've made to follow Jesus will be rewarded in the end. When we were in Turkey, I met a man named Ahmed. He lost his job, his wealth, his home, his nation, and his family when he became a Christian. And yet he told me in broken English, I have no sad. Why? Why? Because what he gained was worth it. It's worth it. Whatever Je following Jesus costs you, dear friend, it will be worth it in the end. Have you rightly responded to Jesus? Have you rightly responded to him? Do you know who he is? Do you understand why he came? Are you following him with joy? Let me leave you with one final example to consider before we leave here this morning. When we were in Turkey, we met a man that I'll call Rahim. 
Rahim was born in a fundamentalist Muslim country where there's virtually zero access to the gospel. No churches, no Christians, no legal Bibles, nothing like that. This is a heavy Muslim country. And Rahim was training to become a Muslim priest called an imam. And in his country, an imam has virtually everything provided for him. Uh, To be an imam is to live a life of luxury that's paid for by the government. He would have been set for life. And Rahim was studying, preparing to become an imam. And as he neared the end of his studies, he became disillusioned with the Quran, the Muslim Bible. He saw so many inconsistencies, so many things that didn't add up. He saw an angry God. And so he decided to forsake his faith and become an atheist. Rahim didn't want to disappoint his family, so he continued pretending that he was a Muslim and that he believed the Quran until it came to the point where he could no longer do that. And he told his family kind of what he was struggling with. And in that time, he had been doing some research online into other religions, and he came across online the New Testament. And Rahim read the entire New Testament, and he said, I believe this. And so he told his family, I'm no longer going to be an imam. I'm no longer a Muslim. I am a follower of Isa, of Jesus. His family had a meeting. And when Rahim told us his story, one of the translators said that he turned and asked them, what's the word that you use for someone that throws rocks to try to kill somebody? And the missionary said, stoning. And he said, yeah, my family wanted to stone me. They all met together and they said that because I had abandoned my faith in Islam and abandoned my studies to become an imam, that the only right thing was that either I would renounce Jesus or I would be stoned to death. And so his mother said to him, Rahim, please, please renounce Jesus. Give up on this Christian thing. And Rahim said, I can't. And so his mother said, then you better run. So Rahim ran. He ran out of his country, ran into a neighboring Muslim country where he hitchhiked his way from one end to the other, got a job where he could get smuggled into Turkey. And when he finally made it to Turkey, a country that's a little bit more tolerant of Christianity than the other countries that he was in, He was so excited to finally go to a church. He said, I've never seen a Christian before. I've never met a Christian before. And once he went with those Christians, he began to give his life to following Jesus. He was baptized. He was discipled. And now he's faithfully giving his life to serve his church. After he shared with us his story, I asked Rahim if what he sacrificed was worth it. And he said, I don't even think about the sacrifice because it's nothing compared to what Jesus sacrificed for him, for me. Rahim responded rightly to Jesus. He learned the truth of who Jesus was. He understood the truth about why Jesus came. And he chose to follow him 
with joy. What about you, dear friend? You can begin by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus today. You can do that right in your seat. Confess your sin to a holy God and tell him that you believe that Jesus really lived and died on a cross in your place and ask him to save you. If you do that today or if you've done that recently, you can take the first step of obedience as a Christian and make your faith public through baptism. If you've done that and you're not connected to a local church, you can talk to one of us today about what it means to belong to a church family. For those of us that are Christians who have made our faith public, let me leave you with one final challenge. In verse 21, it says that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he must uh, rise again. He began to do it, but that wasn't a one-time thing. Why? Because the Christian life is all about over and over and over and over again reminding ourselves of the good news of what Jesus did for us. Let's do that through song in just a moment, but before, after we pray. Father, we thank you so much.